gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. Superman. The Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, Golden Age Superman, The Superman Fan Podcast, Superman in the Bronze Age, From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. I've got a few things to say about Superman. The Superman Vidcast, the world's best podcast, and Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. As well as the audio dramas Superman, Last Son of Krypton, and Supergirl, Last Daughter of Krypton from Pendant Audio Productions. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, J. David Weeder, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Cayman Stoll, I'm Isaac, I'm Adam, Dave Eunice, and co-host Scotty V. At supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Rocketed as a beam from the exploding planet Krypton. Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Superman. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 43 of Superman in the Bronze Age, the only podcast on the internet covering the adventures of Superman from 1970 to 1986. This episode is going to... actually, these next few episodes are going to be a little bit different, because we are going to jump a bit forward and look at my favorite story from the Bronze Age. But first... Would you like to keep up on all your favorite comics, graphic novels, and collected editions, but don't want to pay full retail price? Look no further than Discount. Mm-hmm. Look no further than Discount Comic Book Service. DCBS is an online comics retailer that offers comic fans the f- comics they need at the prices they want, with monthly specials that range from 45 to 75 percent off the retail price, and over 13,000 individual collected editions and graphic novels in stock. DCBS is the one-stop shop that every comic book fan longs for. This month, DC's new 52 number eight issues are available in a bundle for just 50 percent off. You can find them on the web at www.dcbservice.com, and please also make sure to visit their sister stores. In stock trades and my digital comics. Who are you? My name. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> <laughs> so I forgot to introduce myself. I am Charlie Demeyer, and joining me, as always, is the Bronze Age J. David Weeder. That's right. I still have my underpants on the outside. That's yes, and his name's not. Well, yes, it is. He has his name on him and the day of the week. Uh, you know, you're a day behind, right? I don't want to talk about it. Okay then. At least they're not inside out this time. Um, that was awkward. <laughs> so how have you been, man? I've been fantastic. Been a little under the weather. I hear you. Me too. Yeah. It took me a I've while to a get cough. back into back into fighting form. <laughs> I've still got a bit of a cough, and I'm trying to get over it. But hopefully, I can edit them all out. But I probably doubt it. Um, it's a new okay. Well, game. every time Charlie doesn't edit it out, take a shot. There you go, folks. <laughs> and every time I say. 
folks. You could probably take a drink too. I think I think I say that a lot. So what we're going to do is we're going to do things a little bit different, like I mentioned. Uh, we're going to jump ahead to 1976 to my favorite four-part Superman story. Well, actually, I think it's the only four-part Superman story from the 70s. But anyway, my favorite Superman story from the Bronze Age, Man and Superman, is the collective title. Um, because this this story not only brings to an end a long-running pl- subplot that actually we've covered the beginning of already on the show, but it actually features Carrie Bates and Elliot S. Magan working together in tandem, which doesn't happen too often. Um, so what we're, we're we will come back with that right after these messages. After these messages, we'll be right back. Lancers, I've called you here to this unprecedented gathering because we face an unprecedented danger. An enemy we don't yet fully understand. It was for this moment that we were created. But I don't need to tell you your duty. I don't need to tell you who we are. Chosen by the Mystic Guardians of the Universe. Recruited from across the galaxy for their bravery and courage. The best and brightest joined to fulfill a solemn oath. In brightest day. In blackest night, no evil shall escape my sight. Let those who worship evil's might beware my power. Green Lantern's Light. Green Lantern's Light, a monthly podcast covering the adventures of Hal Jordan, John Stewart, Guy Gardner, and the entire Green Lantern Corps from 1984 through today. Say the oath. Join the Corps. Green Lantern's Light. Available monthly at GreenLanternsLight.com. The Hulk on Podcasts. Hulk like podcasts. Hulk listen to podcasts while Hulk smash. The Hulk on Peter David. Hulk like to read Peter David comics. Hulk have problem making words. Hulk write down. Peter David wrote a seminal run on the Incredible Hulk for 12 years. Some of the most provocative, compelling stories came from this era, filled with striking psychological overtones, bold character developments, and sharp humor. Along with artists like Todd McFarlane, Dale Keown, and Gary Frank, Peter David took the Incredible Hulk and the comic book medium as a whole to new heights. The Hulk on Peter David Podcasts. 
Hey folks, in order to appease the Rampaging Hulk, there is an Incredible Hulk podcast devoted to Peter David. Pad Smash, an Incredible Hulk podcast, looks at the entire Peter David run on the Hulk, issue by issue in a bi-weekly format. Join me, J. David Weeder, on a journey through the saga of old J. Jaws at www.incrediblehulksmash.com. Incredible Hulk and all related characters copyright Marvel Comics. Pat Smash is not responsible for gamma radiation sickness, smashed MP3 players, overturned vehicles, tanks thrown through the ceiling, injured supervillains on the lawn, gamma bomb detonations, property damage from debris, deep-rooted psychological damages as a result of intense child abuse resulting in an alternate self-destructive personality with the strength of an atom bomb, or anal leakage. Coming back to begin this four-part epic, we begin in Superman number 296, cover dated February of 1976. Actually would have been on sale on November 13th, 1975. This is, as Charlie mentioned, Carrie Bates and Elliot S. Magan writing a story called Who Took the Super Out of Superman? And is penciled by Kurt Swan, inked by Robert Oxner. And the issue gives us a disclaimer on the title page, which I'm going to share with you. The disclaimer reads, this story, part of the startling saga appearing exclusively in this magazine, takes place after Superman's exploits in other DC magazines, which sounds foreboding. And the saga begins at the beginning. I mean, really at the beginning, with Superman's rocket coming to Earth where Jonathan and Martha can't find him. At the same time, across the continent, another ship lands on the planet, and this golden ship is greeted by two prospectors who are immediately incinerated by a beam shooting from it. The ship's occupant, a man in a golden or yellow dress suit, steps out and looks down at the charred remains of the prospectors. Then the story speeds ahead a few years to Smallville, when the president came to visit the town. Superboy blazed a smoke trail across the sky, carrying the presidential flag. So as the president is shaking hands with Superboy, the man in the golden suit is hanging around the whole time. But he's unchanged. He hasn't aged, which is odd in comparison to Superboy, who has aged to his teens. The man checks into a hotel, gets the first message from his home world. Obviously, he's an alien. They don't bury the lead. He gets the first message in 16 years since the moment he arrived. The message arrives, identifying the man as Xavier. I'm going to spell that so you make sure to realize why I'm saying it that way. X-V-I-A-R. Xavier and orders him to go to Metropolis and wait, because Superboy will eventually settle there, and the boy of steel will become the Man of Steel. So we shoot ahead years later to the present, where Superman is fighting a swarm of killer bees. No, really, bees. Now these bees are actually a cover for a group of sea-bound thieves, and Supes wraps them up, and the thieves, pretty quick. And then he micro-compresses his costume into a pill size, and puts it in his mouth. I took it as he swallows it, but apparently not because it comes back up later. So he goes to meet Lois and Steve Lombard for a karate class at Lackey's Judo School. Now Steve sees some kids throwing a football around, and being Steve, he decides to show off. In the midst of tossing the pigskin around, Steve steps into the path of an oncoming taxi cab. Instinctively, Clark leaps in front of the cab to save Steve, and gets hit by the cab, which actually seems to injure the Man of Steel. 
Clark is knocked on his face in the middle of the street. And so an ambulance is called, and as Clark is loaded into the ambulance, we see that the man in the golden suit is lurking around and thinking, hey, Clark has feigned injury and illness in the past, but things will be different now. When Clark wakes up in the hospital, he is amazed to find that the doctors and nurses, nurses, awesome, the doctors and nurses have managed to put a needle into his arm. His powers are gone. And Lois and Steve come to visit him, and after they leave, Clark takes his suit out, decompresses it, and leaves the hospital as Superman. Now, no sooner has he exited the building than Superman spots some sky crooks floating their way around Metropolis. Superman has a moment of panic, but finds that his superpowers are back in effect, which allows him to take down his second set of bad guys for the issue, which means one if by sea, two by air. And Clark heads back home and tests out his powers to find that, when dressed as plain old Clark Kent, he's a mere mortal, but when wearing the red, yellow, and blue, he's still the Man of Steel. And with all of the distractions, Clark hasn't noticed the large crate in the corner of his apartment, which is too bad because a robot pops out of it and attacks Clark in the name of Intergang. At this point, Superman is half in, half out of his costume, and in the fight learns that if any of his Clark Kent clothing is on his back, his powers are null and void. And so, the robot is made scrap metal, and it's Clark's neighbor, Mrs. Goldstein, stops by to check on him to see what all the ruckus is about and remind him that they're going to go to a tenants' meeting for the building. Clark shrugs it off, says he was moving furniture, and joins her, going heading towards the meeting. As they're leaving, Mrs. Goldstein wonders if Clark's neighbor, Mr. Xavier, who we heard about in the Private Life of Clark Kent backup feature, will show his face at the meeting. He doesn't, but we see his face, and we learn that Clark has been living across the hall from Xeviar, the alien with the golden suit. And Xeviar makes contact with his homeworld and reports that his mission is in progress, moving along. The aliens plan on destroying the Earth with their weapon, Superman. Meanwhile, at the tenants' meeting, Clark thinks to himself that he now has a choice. With this development, he can now continue being Superman or remain only Clark Kent. And we leave him thinking about this decision. Nicely done. Thank you. Um, you want me to go first, or would you like to go first? I did the synopsis. Why don't you tell us what you think of it? I'll go first. <laughs> I have page by pages, because that's what I do. Uh, page two... I want to say that I really like the parallel stuff between um, Zvr, Zvar. Yeah, I, I, I kind of guessed. I always call them XVR, so I don't know. And uh, I, but I like the parallels between the two of them. Although I thought it was rather forward thinking of the uh, aliens to give him '70s style hair. Yeah. <laughs> um, considering he landed what I'm guessing is supposed to be the late '50s, early '60s, since he's meeting who appears to be President Kennedy. Um, but yes, uh, they give uh, ZVR 70s hair. Page 3, um, I thought it was interesting that Smallville is mentioned here to be a Midwestern town when, as far as things go in the 70s, well, in the Bronze Age anyway, um, Smallville is actually kind of a suburb of Metropolis, which is commonly ref uh, referenced as an East Coast City. So I thought that was a little interesting. It's like a pre um Superman movie pre 
which you want to call it, pre-post-crisis reboot. I always took that as Smallville introduced the idea that uh, Smallville and Metropolis were that close. No, there's actually um, an issue that has a map. Um, I think it's been reprinted in more than one place, but the place that I know of it is, I believe, New Adventures of Superboy number 21, maybe? I'd have to go look. But um, in that issue, they have uh, they have a map. Not all, Okay, apparently... Smallville and Bigville are both uh, like suburbs of Metropolis, and Metropolis is right across the river from Gotham City. What? Mm-hmm. Clearly, I will post they would change the that. Obviously, yes, 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 yes. But um, I know at one point they, they, they thought it. Metropolis was in Virginia, and that yes, okay, never mind. I see where you're going. Yeah. So yeah, so mentioning it as a Midwest town was kind of different. At first, I didn't even think about it, and then I realized, wait a minute, it's not Midwest until post-crisis, so this was kind of interesting. Um, page 9. Page 9, um, Superman f- sto- uh, f- stops messing with the bees to take out the crooks on the boat, but doesn't go back to the bees. So, I wonder what happened to the bees. But we still have killer bees today, Charlie. What does that tell you? Exactly. And I'm wondering, too, didn't they have a... 76, I didn't think to do the research on that. Didn't they have a at least one, but several, like, killer bee movies coming out around that time? I am not aware. I know they ha- they've had several killer bee movies, because I've seen them on TV. But I don't know. Well, if it's on TV, it's got to be true. <coughs> yeah. Same thing with the comic book. If it's on the internet, too. Yeah. Um, in any event, uh, page 12, we have... Um, I want to know where the where, where Clark's pulling that costume from. Because we saw him throw it in his mouth. Obviously, like you said, he didn't swallow it. And he was talking. So I don't know how he could have hidden it under his tongue or in his cheek or something. That was the note I had, too. So, so I'm wondering... And, and then he just opens his mouth and pulls it back out. It's like, did he just regurgitate his costume? Because that's kind of gross. And it's pretty cool that it didn't regurgitate... Or, like, blow up in inside of his mouth. Because apparently it needed contact with the outside air. But I would think maybe he would be breathing. But I guess he doesn't breathe much. And we just see it floop up. Uh, floop. I made a word. Uh, just unfoil, uncoil or whatever on the bed it's actually interesting but it's just kind of weird yeah I'll just kind of go with my note to add to that so we don't have to revisit it Um, wouldn't it be covered in spit exactly it's going to be a wet costume yeah and who knows what else he's been eating Uh, last time we saw him eat something it was a kryptonite rock so I don't know so yeah it's kind of yuck um, but beyond that, I thought this was a fun story. Uh, kicks off the mystery pretty well. Um, I noticed Superman got, gets annoyed at all the criminals he has to take down, but he refers to them as trash and stuff, which doesn't seem very Superman to me. And we've seen him do that a few times on the show, but it just was kind of... Uh, it just seemed kind of out of place for him. Um... Beyond that, uh, by this point, we see Lois has uh, stopped trying to prove that Clark is Superman. But I am sure that him getting injured like that from by getting hit by a cab 
probably would have gone a long way to dispel the whole notion of anyway, mm-hmm. even if she was still working on that. Um, it's nice to see the mystery of Mr. Xavier finally revealed. Uh, I told you guys it was coming. We just got to it a little sooner than we had originally planned. Um, and I don't know... That, yeah. And, and it's one of those things... I would highly doubt that when they planned this way back in, what was the late 72, early 73 or something like that, um, I doubt that they had anything like this planned when that happened because I don't even think it was one of these guys that wrote it. I don't remember off the top of my head. But... Um, it, it seems to fit since they kept him so mysterious. So it kind of makes so they made it make make sense. Even and, it, yeah, even if it's a retcon, it's a good retcon. Oh yeah, yeah. Because I mean, we never did get to see him. So and the one time he thought he was following him, it was somebody else. So yeah. But beyond that, I just I really enjoyed the story. Like I said, this is my favorite. Uh, Superman story and this sets it up really well and I have not read this one as often as I've read the other four parts because it took a long time for me to find this issue I can see that it's a famous cover mm-hmm. so it's yes. one of those they're going to mark up I, I didn't have so much page by page on this one I was quite surprised um, more of a general you know Clark getting hurt that had to be a shocker but it could have backfired on him if he did have his Superman powers could have revealed yeah, he could have put a big dent in the front of that taxi cab, and then then Lois would have known. It could have restarted her whole Clark is Superman thing. He has to be. I didn't mm-hmm. like that the that he didn't re- realize there was a huge crate in the middle of his living room, well, in, in the corner of his <laughs> living room. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And something I did realize, I mean, the crate showed up while he was gone. The doorman let himself in and put the crate in there. With what we're going to see coming forward in this story, Clark having having anybody have that kind of access to his apartment was probably a bad plan. Yeah, there's that too. And also, based on what else we see in the story, it it really, really, really shocks me that while Superman is sitting, Superman has no powers while he's still wearing just uh, like Clark's socks and shoes. Yeah. Yeah, really. Makes, you couldn't you could yeah. take off the tube socks, Clark. Yeah, well, it just doesn't make sense that he would not have... I, I can't get. I can't talk too much about it right now because we haven't revealed that yet. But just the way it does get revealed, the fact that he still has his shoes on but no powers is kind of weird. Yeah. But anyway. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, that was... Uh, generally, I thought this was really good, a great setup. Um, and I'm always fascinated by, and since we started covering these, the idea that Clark lives in this kind of interesting building full of eclectic people. Mhm. They they really bring uh, start bringing them into their uh bringing them in as well they keep track of them too. Uh we get to see the same people over and over again like the Marigold twins mm-hmm. and I think this old lady's been in there before. And so it's nice to see that they actually have a quote unquote cast for the apartment building. Yeah. It's it's kind of like a an odd little sitcom. Exactly. But yeah, yeah. I just, I honestly just didn't have a lot to say. I, I enjoyed it. I didn't have any a whole lot to pick apart that you didn't cover in your in your notes. So, oh, sorry about that. But that's okay. I, yeah, this is definitely a good way to start a four part story. Yeah, and I would be very happy reading these issues right now. Uh, well, if you don't have anything else, um, I guess we'll play a couple promos, 
and we'll be right back with the next issue. After these messages, we'll be right back. In a world where planets die. I have come to the conclusion Krypton is doomed. Did I hear him right? Where good and evil fight a never-ending battle. But millions of people will die. Billions. Once again, the press underestimates me. One man will become a hero. Every world needs its heroes, Clark. They inspire us to be better than we are. Protect us from the darkness that's just around the corner. One man will rise to the challenge. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird! It's a plane! One man will wear spandex. Well, one thing's for sure, nobody's going to be looking at your face. Mom? Well, they don't call them tights for nothing. <laughs> Presenting The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a podcast looking at the Man of Steel's history via his earliest adventures in comics, radio, and film. Featuring reviews, commentary, creator spotlights, and more. Join the adventure at GreatCrypton.com. Up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's supermanhomepage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. Supermanhomepage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. Supermanhomepage.com for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more supermanhomepage.com well i think that brings us to the hostess ad for the show okay so we have shazam in the cupcake caper we see billy batson and he's uh, on air at uh what was this this was whiz radio actually it looks like whiz but it looks like or is it the yeah this looks like a tv studio yeah because because when they when he came back he went from being a uh, radio uh announcer to being a television uh, Anchorman. Ah, I don't remember that. I now I remember Clark Kent going from being a newspaperman to a to a newscaster, but I don't remember Billy doing that. I didn't read a whole lot of the return that Shazam series anyway, to be honest with you. But anyway, Billy is reading the news and he's going, "Holy moly! We've just gotten word that it's the strange disappearance of cupcakes around the world is continuing." And he goes to, I guess this must be his producer or something. He says. Unless something is done about these cupcake crooks, kids could be in real trouble. If only we could get in touch with Captain Marvel. So Billy goes to the window and says, Shazam! Shazam! And there's a bolt of lightning, and he turns into Captain Marvel, and Captain Marvel says, Obviously, there's cupcake. There's a cupcake caper. My problem is to find who's behind it and where they've stashed the goodies. So then we cut to apparently a warehouse where the master criminal of the year is stealing a bunch of boxes of Hostess cupcakes. Put the Hostess cupcakes over there, Max. Right, Chief. That completes the cupcake caper. We've got all the cupcakes now. Captain Marvel comes smashing through the tile ceiling and says, Not so fast, dumb one. 
I suppose you want us to return these hostess cupcakes to the kids because they like the devil food cake, chocolatey icing, and creamy filling. That's right. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's hard to read when you're tearing up from laughing so hard. Yes. He says, that's correct, my fiendish friend. <laughs> That's why I'm ending your caper right now. Thanks for ending the cupcake caper, Captain Marvel. That's what friends are for, kids. You get a big delight in every bite of Hostess Cupcakes. I just had some of those. (laughs) Yay! Okay, and we're back. And next up, we've got Superman number 297, which had a cover date of March 76 and an on-sale date of December 11th, 1975. The title of the story is Clark Kent Forever. Superman Never, written by Kerry Bates on plot and Elliot S. Magan on script, penciled by Kurt Swan, inked by Bob Oxner, and edited by Julie Schwartz. At the Olympus Observatory above Metropolis, members of Intergang are converting a giant telescope into a giant, basically a flamethrower. They aim it at the city and fire a blast of orange flame. In a nearby helicopter, Clark spots the flame and changes to Superman for what he says may be the last time. After noting that the flame looks alien, but that the laws of physics dictate that all flame acts the same, no matter its origin, a blast of super breath only succeeds in splitting the flame in two. Next, he tries pulling water out of the harbor using super speed suction to douse the flame, similar to what he did with the bees last issue, but that also fails. So, knowing that many of the hearts in Metropolis have already beaten for the final time. He flies down to the shoreline, shoots up tons of sand into the air, and then uses a combination of super uh, super speed suction and spinning like a rotor to turn the sand spout into a giant sand cocoon that finally succeeds in swallowing the flame. By this point, it's only been six seconds since the flame was first fired from the cannon, and Superman is able to trace the flame back to the observatory at such a great speed that before the inner gang members can even acknowledge that he's heading their way, he's already knocked them all out. After freeing Professor Milius, is what I call it, uh, so that he can call the police, Superman returns to the helicopter before anyone notices that it has no pilot. But since he couldn't obviously film himself as Superman, he hits the film with some X-ray vision. After he turns it into Morgan Edge, the film developer assumes that the orange flame had something to do with the messed up film, which leaves Morgan Edge to believe that Clark has some really rotten luck. Later, Clark decides that with his powers acting weird, he's going to try being just Clark Kent for a week. When he leaves his apartment, he is immediately reminded of his lack of powers, when he meets up with May Marigold in the elevator and pricks his finger on a thorn from the plant she's carrying with her. Meanwhile, back upstairs, XV, uh, XV, ZVR reports to Homeworld to basically recap the last issue, and then uses some devices. No, then uses a device to enter Clark's apartment and searches for his hidden space trophies, because Clark didn't have enough room in the fortress, so he keeps some in his apartment. At an exclusive Midtown restaurant, Clark has met up with Lois, and they're waiting for Steve, who is running a little late. He soon shows up. Uh, giving Clark a slap on the back just as Clark starts drinking some water, which Clark, which causes him to choke and spill some of it. Steve asks him if his mom ever told him not to gulp his water, and Clark responds by tipping the table over onto Steve and leaving the restaurant. As he spends the rest of his lunch hour trying to cool down, he passes a subway station as a torrent of water floods up out of it. He's about to change... 
but the fire department soon shows up, explaining that everyone is safe, the tunnel had already been closed for repairs, and the crew has scuba gear. So Clark continues on, realizing that maybe the world doesn't need a Superman after all. Meanwhile, in the bottle city of Candor, Webb knew and his assistant realized that Superman is acting strangely. Feeding the info into their computer, we learned that normally Superman would have shown up, used his super breath to push to both push back the water and also super drive the tunnel, and then use his heat vision to fuse the tunnel's ceiling back together. But why didn't he? That night, Lois shows up at Clark's apartment. She makes him a, din- a dinner of beef... Bor- here it goes. <laughs> yeah, shut up. Of beef, and I have it written here as beer, so that's awesome. Of beef... Bor... I don't even remember how the guy said it on the sound thing. Beef Bor Wong. We'll go with that. Borignong. Beef Borignong. And they talk. (laughs) Learning a lot about each other. By the time the Johnny Nevada show comes on, Clark and Lois actually start making out. And the next morning, Steve sees Lois leaving a flower for Clark on his desk and singing so much that she doesn't even notice the former quarterback. Meanwhile, Clark is covering a protest at a meatpacking plant that appears to be about to turn into a riot until Superman shows up and calms the crowd. Clark interviews the Man of Steel, who was glad that he didn't have to use his powers, which actually is very fortunate, because we learn that this Superman is actually Gregory Reed, the Superman actor we we met several episodes ago, who is obviously not super-powered. Later, Morgan Edge plans to send Clark to cover his story in Chile, and calls Clark to his office to send him. But Clark defiantly grabs Edge's cigarette out of his mouth, and states that he is not going. Now, at this point, we'd expect to see Clark fired and being thrown out of the office, but a few minutes later, we actually see Clark and Edge leaving Edge's office, with Edge promising Clark a raise, and then having Miss Conway call Steve Lombard into his office. Soon we see Steve pretty upset about having to go to Chile, and that it was Clark's suggestion, and he meets up with Clark and Lois in an elevator to express his anger. Then the elevator doors close. When the elevator doors open again on the bottom floor, we see Steve sitting on the floor of the elevator rubbing his chin, while Clark and Lois casually exit, with Clark telling Lois that his father always taught him to never lead with your right. You would think an athlete like Steve Lombard would know that. Later again, we get uh, after getting some info from an informant on Intergang's whereabouts and picking up an invention from Professor Pepperwinkle, Clark sneaks into the Intergang's secret headquarters, which is a trailer from the Acme Moving and Storage Company, which I only mentioned because that comes back in the post-crisis. More on that later. Inside, he uses the professor's device to actually basically turn off the gravity in the trailer, and Clark who has been used to flying and spent as much, uh, yeah, who is used to flying and has been in space since before he could walk, uh, is able to use his experience to take out all three intergang agents before they can even realize what's going on. Later, as he and Lois return to his apartment, we learn that intergang had planned to bathe Superman in the orange flame from earlier, which would have made it so that if he had used his powers again within a certain number of time, certain amount of time, he would have literally ignited and taken half of Metropolis with him. Fortunately, Superman didn't show up that week, and 
that stuff is already worn out by this point. After they enter the apartment, we switch to ZVR, who has nine space jewels he took from Clark's apartment, which will allow him to channel Superman's energy into destroying the Earth and Superman. That was a so what you think about this? That one? was a lot to put into one issue. Yes, which is why they didn't have a backup. Well, yeah, but I mean, <laughs> even on a regular length issue, there was a lot of things going on. We had the very interesting turning the observ- observatory into some sort of flamethrower, which just gonna say it it doesn't work that way. No, no, it wouldn't. But hey, it's Bronze Age science fiction. Yeah, anything's possible. Well, somehow he manages to fork the the fire as well. That's on page well, yeah. four. <laughs> what? Yeah. He forks it twice. Yeah. Although the second time he just re-forks the fork. I don't know. Um, One of the best parts of the issue was on page seven when Clark, you know, checks out the, you know, one of the Marigold twins, her plant, the, the, the cactus, mm-hmm. and he actually bleeds. It made me think, and I know this predates it, but it made me think of of Superman 2 when he gets punched in the in, in the face while they're at the uh, diner he just goes uh-huh. oh wow I'm, I'm bleeding that's gotta be a mind blower yeah considering he's what been spending just about all his life not doing that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then once again uh, as I mentioned with, uh, with the last issue wow ZVR can just roam right into Clark's apartment whenever he wants yeah but have you ever thought about all the secret all the secret compartments he puts in the apartment He's going to lose his deposit, man. Oh, totally. It's amazing. this, st- And I want to know how he's done all this without anyone noticing. Yeah. Yeah, really? <laughs> Dang. You, you hear sawing and, and banging and sheetrock? How, how does he get the sheetrock into the building without the even the, the doorman saying, uh, Dude, what are you up to? Exactly. Nothing's, uh, nothing's suspicious uh, here. And, I mean, he's got to be running out of wall space. I mean, literally, his walls have to be paper thin with all the secret compartments he's put behind walls. Yeah, yeah. You yeah I don't think know. the apartment would get start getting smaller, or yeah, it must be a really cramped place. <laughs> and the, the big, the biggest thing for me was on page nine when Clark basically throws the table onto Steve. <laughs> I know, I'm I like, love it. Yes, finally. I mean, how uh, having been a comic book fan in my teens, I dealt with the the, and I won't say dumb jocks. I'm not going to st- stereotype them, but you know that sort of attitude. So to have been able to to do that to show them up, that's the fantasy mm. right there. That's the dream. And I'm betting Michael Bailey wishes he was on this episode, because he would have loved to see Steve Lombard get his. He's such a big fan of Steve Lombard. I know that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yes, that's why we had him on. Yep. Well, that was funny that he requested it, and then he's like, "I just don't like Steve Lombard." <laughs> uh, yeah, I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> I guess it's probably that's that's Mike Bailey's sense of humor. Exactly. Plus, that's where we were at the time. <laughs> now we're jumping around. We're time traveling. Um, the subway on page ten. I I think the point that I really took from this, from his, from Superman and or Clark Kent's point of view was, you know, the the world always got along before there was Superman. Mm-hmm. Is Superman, it, it, does the world need Superman, or is he a nice added added bonus? To, to take it back to Superman Returns on the whole why the world doesn't or does need Superman. Do we need him, or is he just a nice, you know? Personally, I think the world needs Superman in the real world just for that, the idea of good, but it's a 
I'm playing devil's advocate. What do you think? Right. Well, I I think sometimes he can forget, but um, he's not needed as often as he sometimes thinks he is. Granted, I would have thought something like this would be a job for Superman, but if they already were prepared for that possibility, that makes sense. I wonder if in the real world they have contingency plans for that. Oh, I would think so, because they work on that kind of stuff in the real world. Yeah, that that is a... Why, yeah, the subways can flood. I mean, subways are not only under rivers, but they're also under cities. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they have to have contingency plans for all those tunnels. Uh, I mean, I know living near Baltimore, they have at least two tunnels that go under, like, the Baltimore Harbor. And so they have to, you know, they have contingencies upon contingencies. I don't know how well they're, how well versed people are in them, but, uh, yeah. So it makes sense. I don't know that the guy, that the crew in the tunnel would be, you know, like in a position to actually get the scuba gear when the thing went, you know, when the flood started. Mm -hmm. Um, so hopefully there was enough time to get to it, but yeah. Um, my final page by page is on page 15 and I think you, you touched upon it in your synopsis I, Morgan Edge must be just a big pansy in general because you, in last episode we had Perry White telling him off this episode Clark's putting a cigarette out in his drink oh come on come on well that's it, a timing thing because last issue was like two, three years ago yeah but we've seen Clark kind of mouth off to Morgan Edge before and put him in that position. I just realized... This is true. If I did that to my boss, A, why would my boss be smoking in the building? That's another big question, but B, (laughs) (laughs) if you did that to a superior, see how fast, you know, you get booted out. There's a box with your name on it. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, I don't think uh, that a little bit later I'd be getting a raise. No. No. Mm -mm. But uh, overall, I mean, I, I thought there was... It was a bit of a busier chapter than the first one. I think some of this may have been better spread out over the two issues rather than kind of having the basic setup in the first issue and then, you know, suddenly jumping to the Bottle City of Candor and ZVR with his little, um, I don't even know what those are, little Aztec symbols or whatever. They <laughs> <laughs> oh, those space jewels? Space jewels, yeah, really. They just, they look, yeah. they're... Uh, you'd have to see the picture. They're odd looking. Mm-hmm. They are. And there's one, two, three, four, five, six. Seven. Yeah, there's nine. Yep. And they got little uh, different colored, I guess you could call them glows around them. Auras. There you go. That's what I was looking for. <clears throat> yeah. And at first I thought, how does he, how does Clark and Lois are going to return to the apartment? How did they not realize there's a giant hole in the wall? But then I realized it was the ZVR's technology that opened the hole, so it probably closed it when he left. Because mm-hmm. that would have kind of thrown things off right at the beginning. But was that all you had? Or That's you all have? I had. I thought it was just a little busier okay. than it needed to be, but overall, pretty pretty darn good. Yeah. I, I, I um, Well, let me get into mine. <clears throat> Throat's a little... Yeah. Um... As far as mine, page two. Um, Considering that they've figured out a way how to turn a giant telescope into a giant flamethrower, I'm wondering if 
this intergang still has an apocalypse connection since they no longer have the Morgan Edge clone and all that other stuff. I'm not sure because Jack Kirby's not at DC Comics anymore and as this issue comes out I don't believe that they have any of the uh, fourth world stuff returned yet so there's no telling on that. But it is pretty interesting that Intergang would have the technology to turn a giant telescope into a big flamethrower. If you know what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying. <laughs> if you know what I mean. Uh, page 5. Uh, like I mentioned, uh, basically some of this stuff is tricks that Superman pulled just last issue. So um, when he's trying to pull out the flyer... Put, yeah, put out the fire this time, and last time it was taking care of those bees. And I usually like a little more variety in my super deeds, but, you know, it kind of makes sense, I guess, because, you know, what works once will work again. Um, page 9, like you said, he takes down... He, he throws the table onto Steve Lombard, and that is just the awesomest thing. And I wish that would stick around for a while, but it won't. But it is cool, and I, I kind of feel bad for Steve because... I mean, I know it hurts, but he's got the table literally sitting on his crotch. Yeah, that that would hurt just a skosh. Crotch, it's the crotch, bladder, stomach area. So yeah, uh, that would that would hurt, and yeah. Um, just pointing that out. Oh, page ten, Clark actually mentions that he didn't realize how dirty the air was in Metropolis when he didn't have to breathe. And it's just kind of weird that that means he, I guess he just spent most of his time just not breathing. I, I didn't. As someone that needs to breathe, it's kind of hard not to imagine being, imagine consciously thinking, well, I don't need to breathe. I'll just go. Yeah, but we didn't, he mentioned something about that um, when he had, he had to not touch the ground. He had to exhale. And he said, yeah, it was an odd sensation then. I didn't. I didn't think it went that far. I just thought the amount of, of exhalation, if that's a word, the amount that he had to exhale was the odd sticking point. Exactly. Right. But, yeah, it was just kind of weird. Um, and it's actually, uh, they, they don't, at this point, they hadn't been, been bringing up pollution stuff very much um, since they got out of the early 70s. So that was kind of somewhat noteworthy um, page 12 we get our first instance of beef I can't pronounce it Orguignon. thank you and that's really cool because it comes back later it, for okay basically for the rest of the Bronze Age that is Clark's favorite food and while we don't see it too much in the post crisis by the time Jeff Loeb comes back uh, or comes back shows up in the books we learn that Lois and Clark's code word for Clark is safe is beef bourguignon bourguignon with ketchup so that's kind of cool um and also Lois and Clark are in love I know it's kind of cool um you you wouldn't think it would happen not in this era anyway but it's pretty interesting and not only it appears that not only do they make out during the Johnny Nevada show but even after it's over, 
And at this point, this was 70, late 75, early 76, there was a point where, like, after that happened, the network would conclude its broadcasting day. Oh, yeah, you'd have the America, or the national anthem and then static. Yeah, static or the uh, color bars. And, well, this one, they just go just goes to a blank screen. But, yeah, so they, they, they apparently made out for a long time. And Lois doesn't want to think. She doesn't want to know. It's just kind of crazy. Um, I'm sorry, were you going to say something? No, you, you covered okay. it. Okay. Uh, page 13. Um, the original script, and I'm noticing as I'm looking at it, I had read it uh, via a different method. Reading the actual comic itself, I do see she's wearing a different outfit than she did wear previously. But um, originally, Lois was supposed to wear the same outfit from the afternoon meeting with Clark and Steve at the restaurant all the way through the re- that that day and the script actually called for Steve to comment that Lois was wearing the same dress as the day before indicating that maybe Lois stayed the night at Clark's place but obviously for comic code authority reasons and because it's the 70s and this was a kids book and it's Superman they didn't like that so they uh, they change the outfit and make sure that Steve says that it's another new getup. Yeah, heaven forbid adults have. Well, I guess yeah, it is still considered a kids book. That might. Yes. <laughs> yes. Despite the fact that she stayed over very 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 late. Well, you know what it made me think of was when Kellogg's Cornflakes. Um, they sponsored the new the Adventures of Superman TV show, and mm-hmm. they would have ads where. Jimmy and Clark would have breakfast together or Perry and Jimmy or Clark and Perry etc etc but they would never allow Lois into it because a woman couldn't be seen having breakfast because that would imply well exactly although this day and age the three guys hanging out together having breakfast together implies other stuff now exactly especially Perry and Jimmy that's a little weird yeah or all three of them yeah uh wanting to go there okay Page 15, and like you said, they had to cr- they crammed a lot of stuff into this issue, but in one page, we have Clark Kent standing up to Morgan Edge and putting out a cigarette. Then, even though it's technically off-panel, it's still on this page where he basically punches Steve Lombard out. This one page must have blown readers' minds in 1976. Because... This is totally not Clark here. No. It's it's emo Peter Parker from Spider-Man 3. Exactly. Yeah, you're waiting for the black Superman costume to come on. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it's kind of freaky. I mean, it's not freaky. It's really cool, but it must have... Excuse me. It must have been like, Yes, this is what I've been waiting for! And it's almost like, I wonder if John Byrne saw this issue and was like, This is what Clark should be like. He should grow up there. And pair. decided he should be... Yes, Exactly. A pair of what, Dave? Testicles. Okay, just checking. <laughs> just making sure that we were on the same page there. I, I think that page one could have 15. been safely assumed. <laughs> yeah, some of it will probably, I don't know, I'll probably keep it. Uh, page 18. Now, Clark and Lois go into his apartment and says, um, he says, want to see something, Lois? I've got this great romantic view of the apartment across the street. Now, one, it makes me wonder if that's Lois's apartment. And two, 
stalker much. <laughs> it's kind of weird. Even if it's not Lois's, just the fact that he's looking at someone else's apartment is weird. That's all I can say. I'm not sure exactly what's implied, but... Yeah. You know what? You date your way, I'll date mine. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. The thing... People were into different stuff in the 70s, so yeah, there's, there's no telling. I don't know. But uh, to me, I thought that it was a fun story. I'm loving the art. Um, as much fun as we've enjoyed, as much as we've both enjoyed the Kurt Swan, Murphy Anderson stuff, I actually kind of prefer Oxner's inks over Swan. I agree completely. I think it's a lot sharper. It's sharper. Superman is a little more buff and defined when he inks it. And I think that their styles are actually a lot more similar than Anderson's. And, well, I don't know about similar, but he lets a lot more of Swan's pencils shine than Anderson does sometimes. Sometimes uh, Superman, uh, Clark, Swan's pencils can look very uh, Anderson-ish, and he does that with a lot of people. But Ostner's very good. I mean, if you look at the uh, grant, I think Kurt Swan comes in and does the faces for Superman on the covers. But if he doesn't, those look awesome too. But they're very similar in some of their facial stuff. They're very similar in some of their designs. So they work really well together. And it's a shame that he can't, that he wasn't able to do uh, produce as many issues as Anderson was because when when Oxner isn't inking, they have a guy named Tex Blisdale doing the inking. And if you've ever read an issue with Tex Blisdale as the inker, you know he's not a very good inker, in my opinion. What a hold back. Tell us how you really feel, Charlie. Yeah. Well, he. I've not only read stu- the, some Superman issues that he's inked, but some Batman stuff. And he just... Uh, it's just... He doesn't do a very good job. <laughs> in my opinion. But we're not talking about that. Because that's over in Action Comics. And we're not talking about that this this time. Um, But yeah. Did you have anything else? No, that, I think we covered it. <laughs> Alright, well... Excuse me. Oh, there's your drink. Okay, folks, so that takes care of part one of our coverage of this story. Are you enticed yet? Um, so what we're going to do is we'll be back next episode with part three of the Man, Superman or Superman saga. And that will be in two weeks. So until then, I'm Charlie. I am David. Yes, he is. And we'll see you next time. Back in two and two. Peace! <laughs> Thank you for listening to Superman in the Bronze Age, hosted by Charlie Niemeyer and J. David Weeder. Superman in the Bronze Age is a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network at supermanpodcastnetwork.com, where new episodes are posted bi-weekly. Episodes are also posted at superbronze1970.lipson.com, supermaninthebronzeage.blogspot.com, amazingworldofsuperman.com, and supermanhomepage.com. You can also subscribe to the show via the RSS feed and iTunes. All images, characters, and music used in the show are for entertainment purposes only. No money is made by the show. Superman, created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Thank you for listening, and God bless.
Superman is also a copyrighted feature, appearing in Superman DC publications.